Now, there was no telephones that you could use to uh, make a call, no cell phones that you could use to throw a text and say, hey, I'm on my way. And so the day came when there's a knock on the door, and Paul opens the door, and there's this really dear friend, an old friend, that he hasn't seen for quite a while from the city of Philippi. And again, his name is Epaphroditus. Now, he hadn't been doing much. Paul's just been hanging around the house. That's what you do when you're under house arrest. You just hang around the house. And as uh, he gets through the greeting and, hey, great to see you and wasn't expecting you, then it's like, what are you doing here? You know, What's brought you here? And so Epaphroditus begins to explain that he has come to deliver this financial love gift that Paul is in need of from the church at Philippi. And He's going to stay there in Rome for a period of time to be able to help Paul if there's anything he can do to assist Paul while he's in this situation. And the brothers and sisters back in Philippi, understanding the situation that Paul is in, they're really concerned about you, Paul. And so they're going to expect me to bring back a report. How's Paul doing as he goes through this situation in Rome of being under house arrest and facing this upcoming trial? And so... Paul begins to fill him in on this experience that he's had while he's been under house arrest. Now, you have to pause for just a moment. It took a moment for Epaphroditus to get used to the idea that there is a six-foot Roman soldier fully armed standing three feet away uh, while he's having this conversation with Paul. And maybe at some point in Paul, or in the conversation, Paul does something like, I'm sorry, pardon me, my manners. Claudius, Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus, this is Claudius, and you know, whatever that was like, to have this big Roman soldier standing there, fully armed, uh, chained to Paul. But they have that conversation. And after Paul got done sharing, he would have asked, well, how are things going back in Philippi? Uh, How are the people doing? How is the ministry progressing there? And Epaphroditus would have been able to say, you know, Paul, overall, things are going really well. People are doing well. The ministry is doing well. But, you know, like any church, there are some challenges that we're facing. Toward the top of those challenges would have been the fact that you had these two leading ladies in the church who are at odds with each other. And other people in the church are beginning to choose sides. And so, you know, Paul, unfortunately, this is becoming a bit of a threat to the unity that we've had in our church. Also, being a Roman colony, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments, the pressure that the rest of the church will feel in just a few years, they're feeling now. And so there's, there's some pressure that's being placed on them um, to give in a little bit, to compromise a little bit on the gospel and on some of the teachings related to Jesus Christ. And so after some time has passed by, probably it's actually several months, Paul and Epaphroditus get together and Paul begins to dictate this letter that we're looking at together. Epaphroditus is writing it down as Paul is speaking. He's also going to be the delivery guy who will take this letter back to the church at um, Philippi. And Paul wants to make sure he thanks them for this generous gift, but he's also going to say, let me deal with some of these issues that Epaphroditus has told me about. And he begins to do that here in this passage that we had read for us this morning. We already know as we've started this letter that Paul begins by expressing his love and joyful gratitude for the church and 
Then he assures them that, you know what, I'm praying for you regularly. And he then begins to answer their question, hey, Paul, how are you doing? Especially in the situation that you're in. And Paul says, you know what, I have a settled joy in the Lord. And not only do I have a settled joy in the Lord, I am rejoicing because the gospel is being shared and people are getting saved. I have had the opportunity to share the gospel with some of these Roman guards. Maybe Claudius is one of the guards that's actually put faith in Jesus Christ. Because some of the guards have done that. Paul says the brothers here and the sisters here, they're sharing the faith with more boldness because of my encouragement to them. And you know what? Some of them are doing it out of envy. They're competing to show that they're better than me. But even those, I rejoice that they're sharing the gospel. God will work, deal with their motives later. And as far as my trial, I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm content either way. If God has me released to freedom, that's more fruitful ministry for me. But if God chooses for me to be executed, then I will go to the presence of Jesus. I've put my confidence in God, Paul is saying, and I'm remaining focused on Jesus Christ. And then, as we get into verse 27, Paul, in essence, is saying, now let's talk about you. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the situations that you're dealing with, some of the things that you're facing there at the church in Philippi and in your own personal lives. And he starts by saying in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is we're going to see in a moment. Guys, before I go into anything else, here's the main thing. The highest priority. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Live your life that demonstrates the power of the gospel, not only to save us from our sin, but to change and transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. With a commitment to share Christ and watch as God brings people to saving faith. That's a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Faith to believe that leads to salvation, that leads to transformation, that leads to our testimony of the gospel, opportunities to share the gospel, and watch as people put saving faith in Christ around us. We are to be growing disciples of Jesus who are committed to making disciples of Jesus. And Paul says that's the main thing. And so let's look more closely at these words starting in verse 27 and unwrap this as Paul unwrapped it for the Philippian believers. Um, First of all, This word only means above all. See where it says only let your manner. That word, little word only means above all, the main thing, the priority above everything else. As I've already mentioned, Paul's going to talk about a lot of different things before he gets to the end of this letter. And he wants them to know as he gets started, all that's important, but none of it's as important as this. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this word worthy is a really interesting word, too, because it actually means be a good citizen. To be a good citizen. 
And so why is Paul saying, be a good citizen of the gospel of Christ? What does he mean by that? Well, we've got to remember that Philippi is a Roman colony that's located in the nation of Greece. Many of the citizens of Philippi actually are descendants of Roman soldiers. And so even though they are right in the middle of Greece, they actually embrace Roman culture and Roman religion. If you are in the city of Philippi, you speak Latin. You don't speak Greek. Also, they are enjoying these special rights and privileges as Roman citizens in a country in which nobody else has those rights and privileges. They're really proud of who they are as Roman citizens in a colony of Rome. In a real way, Philippi is an oasis of Roman culture and authority within a foreign country. And so when, when he says, be a good citizen, that, that connects with them right away. They're not citizens of Greece. They're citizens of Rome. Also, in the first century, you did not have the extreme emphasis on individuality that we do in our culture. It wasn't about individual rights and my pleasure and my fulfillment. They were about community. They were about community. The individual lived in a way that brought honor to their community. And if you had to do that at a personal cost, then that's what you did. Personal sacrifice for the sake of the community, was a big value in the first century. In fact, if you did something that brought dishonor to yourself and to your community, you probably were going to lose your citizenship, and then they would ban you from living there. And so this idea of community is really important. And so what Paul is doing by using this word is he's reminding the Philippians, you know what, now you are disciples of Jesus Christ. And you are citizens of his kingdom. You are no longer a Roman citizen of Philippi. You are a disciple of Christ, and you live in his kingdom. Philippi is now simply the location that you live, but you're there as ambassadors of Christ, you are there as representatives of Jesus Christ. And the church is to be an oasis of God's presence in this world. The church is the oasis of God's presence in this world. And that's what Paul is getting at by using this word. Your allegiance is now to Jesus. So live your life in a way that honors him. In the same way, as we stand here, our primary identity is no longer being a citizen of the United States. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, and our primary identity and our primary residence is we are residents and citizens of his kingdom. The United States, and, very, and more specifically, Washington, Illinois, is the location in which God has us as his ambassadors and his representatives. But our mission is to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are citizens of his kingdom who are living here as his representatives. And everything that we do and say and how we interact with the community around us should be done in light of the fact of who we are and who we serve.
One of the stories that I heard a number of years ago was by a gentleman by the name of Warren Wiersbe. Many of you will be familiar with him. Warren Wiersbe was a well-known preacher and teacher in the second half of the 20th century. And he told a story one time about another famous, well-known preacher that he was having lunch with, and he didn't give us his name. And he said, we were at his restaurant, and it was a pretty nice restaurant, and we sat down and we ordered our food, and he ordered a, you know, a nice steak and a baked potato, sour cream, and string beans. And when the food came out, it was a steak with, with, that was done nicely, but instead of string beans, they brought out peas. And this guy hated peas. And he went into an absolute tirade on the waitress on how could you possibly have put down string beans when I clearly said peas and I don't want peas, I want string beans. And this, is, this, this guy just kind of goes off. This crushed waitress goes back into the kitchen with a little thing of string beans She's, uh, to bring out peas. Or, or did I get that wrong? Okay. <laughs> Somewhere I switched that. I could tell. I could tell by looking at my wife's face. I did something. You know, guys, you can relate with that, right? <laughs> I assumed I switched it because that's what I was doing in the moment. All right, she went back to get the correct vegetable. <laughs> and as she was doing that, thank you, sweetheart. As she was doing that. Warren Wearsby leaned forward and said, I dare you to witness to her when she comes back. No matter what's going on around us and how much we might disagree with it, tomorrow you might have the opportunity to witness to that person. Or a person in that particular community or lifestyle. It is not that we don't engage in, the, in, in this world that we live in, but we always remember this. At the end of the day, the most important thing is interacting with people and on issues in such a way that tomorrow we can witness to those people and they will be open to it because of the way we are gracious and humble in our attitudes. And that's what Paul is getting at with this idea of citizenship. Before you and I are citizens of the United States and members of this culture and community we are in, we are disciples of Jesus Christ and citizens of his kingdom. And everything we do is in light of the fact that tomorrow we may have the opportunity to represent him and share him with somebody. We live today for the opportunity to share tomorrow. We are citizens of a different kingdom. And Paul wants them to understand that. Now, we need to remember also the context here. This passage is connected to what Paul has been saying earlier, and that is we are living a life worthy of the gospel. And remember, he's already talked about the fact that that means that our love for God and people is abounding more and more. It means that we are seeking to always discern what is God's best in any moment and situation, that we are authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, that we are filled with his righteousness and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and you and I are living our lives to the praise and glory of God. And so, as Paul has already gone through those things, he is summarizing here and says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your citizenship 
in the kingdom bring honor and glory to Christ. And Paul has put himself up as an example to follow. He's been able to say to them, I put my confidence in God and my focus on Jesus Christ and my desire and goal is for the gospel of Jesus to be shared and people come to know him as Savior. And I'm content with how God chooses to do that through my life and ministry. And so here's the main thing, he says. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, he shared about how he's doing that in his life and situation in Rome. Well, now he turns to the Philippians and says, let's talk about you and your situation. This is how I'm doing it here in Rome under house arrest, but how, how, how can you be doing this in Philippi, where you're living, in the context of your life? And as he does that, he's going to share three different things. First is this, we stand firm in the gospel we stand firm in the gospel. Look back at verse 27 again, and it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. The word stand firm means to stand your ground regardless of danger or opposition. It's the idea of having a firm grip on the ground so that no matter what comes and hits you, you stand. You aren't knocked off. You don't move. There's a firmness, there's a resolve, and there's a strength. It was used to describe a soldier who was standing their ground in a battle and not being moved out of their position. I imagine that might have come to Paul's mind because Claudius is standing three feet away. You know, so he looks at this Roman soldier and he thinks about, yeah, stand firm. Now, the interesting thing with Roman soldiers is one of the reasons that they had so much success in the battlefield was they had this real significant advantage in something, their sandals their footwear. First of all, it was, it was more stable and, and more solid than what most armies would wear. But also it had, not pointed, but actually rounded spikes in the uh, metal spikes in the bottom, about that long, that when they were in a battle, they would be able to plant their feet and that would bring that stability that you, uh, you need in hand-to-hand combat. And so as he's talking about standing firm, he's thinking about these soldiers in very much like an athlete that's wearing baseball or football spikes, recognizing the advantage it is to be able to just plant those feet and actually be into the ground, and now you're standing your ground. You're standing your ground. Have yourself just planted, he's saying, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul is waiting for his trial before the emperor, the pressure on Christians in places like Philippi was really beginning to grow. You see, Christians talked about the fact that there is this other kingdom that I've already referenced. They talk about the fact there is already another king named Jesus. And they are saying that this Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, he's going to establish an earthly kingdom that will reign over all other human authority. 
And so Roman citizens were beginning to say, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, and question the loyalty that these Christians had as Roman citizens and, and their loyalty to the emperor and their loyalty to the empire. And on top of that, Rome is a very pluralistic society where all religions were tolerated as long as there was one thing. You did not agitate people and disrupt the peace. You can have any religion you want as long as you don't agitate people and disrupt the peace. Well, guess what? Wherever Jesus Christ is preached, you're going to agitate people and you're going to disrupt the peace. Jesus himself said that. And so more and more they're saying to Christians, you know what? You have got to stop with these exclusive claims of Jesus. And you need to, you need to bend some. You need to compromise some. You, you have to be able to fit in better. So let's be a little less vocal with the gospel and demonstrate your loyalty to the empire and to the emperor and prove that the community is greater to you than this one man, Jesus. And some Christians are beginning to feel that pressure and they're beginning to waver a little bit. And so Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. And he's saying, stand firm, planted in the truth of the gospel. And Paul is focused on the gospel message itself. See, especially in the world that we are living in today, this post-Christian, unbiblically illiterate culture that we're now in, it's important that people recognize that the gospel begins with a creator God who put all of this cosmos into place, who this whole universe is here because there is a creator God and he's personal. It's a personal creator God. And he created each and every person and he, is the, and he gives the gift of life. And he has created within creation a design that is to be followed. God created people in his image so that they can experience a close relationship with him forever. But we have decided, mankind, humankind has decided to rebel against God because we are determined to choose what is right and wrong for ourselves. We are determined to live the life that we want to live. And we are determined that we will not be accountable to this God or his ways. God has declared that that determination to be self-centered and rebellious is called sin. And the result of sin is that it separates us from him and it separates us from him for eternity because God has also declared that sin must be punished and the punishment for sin ultimately is eternal separation from him. But God deeply loves the people that he has created and so he sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and to die on the cross and payment for sin. And once he had been dead for three days and had paid the penalty for sin, he rose from the dead and he defeated death, he defeated Satan, and he defeated sin. And in the cross, he offers forgiveness. In his resurrection, he offers eternal life. And he gives forgiveness and he gives eternal life to anybody who will put saving faith in him. 
Saving faith begins with repentance. It's a recognition that if God is here, I have made a determination to face this way, to do my thing, to live my life in rebellion against Him. And there is a moment as I hear the gospel, I repent, which means I turn around and I face God and I say, God, I now desire to be in a right relationship with you. I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die in payment for my sin and that he rose from the dead and that he is living forever and he offers eternal life. And as I put saving faith in him, he makes me right with you forever and I will now love you and I will now follow you the rest of my life into eternity itself. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the fullness of the gospel. And that is the message we stand on. It's the message we live by. It is the message that we share. Like the Philippians of the first century, you and I now find ourselves living in a culture that is pluralistic. Doesn't want to be held accountable to God or His design. Who's rejected the exclusive claims of Jesus. And Paul says the same thing to you and I this morning. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the fullness of its truth, but do it in love, do it with humility and a gracious spirit. We're not told anywhere in Scripture to stand against the culture that we live in. We are told to stand for the gospel and declare it to the people we live around. We stand on the gospel and its truth. Jesus. And we do it together. The second thing he says is stand together in unity. We stand together in unity. Notice he says in the last part of verse 27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, Paul is picturing Roman soldiers. This time it was a formation called the Testudo Formation. That's where 100 Roman soldiers stood 10 across, 10 deep, forming a a square of 100 soldiers. And they, soldiers in front had these large shields and they would lock those shields. They literally had places where they could lock their shields together and form this wall in front of them of protection. The soldiers in the other ranks went over their heads so that any arrows that came down from above would just glance off. And so they were protected in front and from above, and they could stand their ground against anybody. It was not effective for moving forward and taking ground, but it was incredibly effective for standing your ground. And that's what Paul has in mind here as he says, stand together, lock shields Be one. Protect each other and stand together. As believers, we're not called to live this life to stand on the gospel alone. We lock shields together and we stand together. We're united. You and I, we we share so much in common. We, We share the gospel message in common. We have a shared commitment to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We desire to be authentic disciples who display the righteousness of Jesus. And we're at all kinds of different places, from seeker to mature and everything in between. 
But there's that sense of progressing, of moving forward, of growing. And we do it together. We do it together. We have one spirit, Paul says. This is our human spirit, not the Holy Spirit in this reference. That means we share a common desire, motivation, and commitment to Christ. We do it in one mind. That means we share the same truth of the gospel and the perspective that that gives us on life. And then we strive side by side. There, Paul does something that you're not supposed to do. He mixes metaphors. He changes this picture for us from soldiers to athletes because the striving side by side is the idea of an athletic team working together. So we're teams, we're a team that works together. And so we share this common desire and commitment founded on the truth of the gospel with the perspective this gives of life. And so we lock shields and we live our lives together that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul is going to be teaching a lot more about what that looks like in the weeks to come. But the third thing and the closing thing this morning, we need to be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. We need to be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. Look with me at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He says it's been granted to you, and that word granted to you is carizo. It's the same word that we get the word grace. Grace. It's a word that signifies something that's been given to us as a gift. And so what Paul is saying is, God has given you the gift of suffering, of opposition and persecution for Jesus Christ. In sovereign grace, God has not only given us the marvelous gift of faith to believe, but he's also given us the privilege to suffer for Christ. Jesus echoed these words in Matthew 5 during the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Soon after Jesus' return to the Father, the apostles began to experience the literal lash of persecution as two of them were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were whipped and scourged and then ordered, stop preaching this Jesus. But in response, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. And he says that this is a conflict. This is a conflict. That's a word that means to agonize, and the picture actually is back to an athlete. It's, it's what an athlete does when they're in training. They agonize, they're training, they're pushing themselves to build up both their skill and their endurance. And so Paul says, when you, 
when you suffer persecution, if you suffer opposition, it is simply going to mature your faith, develop spiritual muscles, and give you fresh courage. And so let it do its work in your life. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has endured persecution wave after wave. And because the love and gospel of Jesus Christ will always be a threat to those who are determined to live for self and power, but God has always used that persecution to strengthen the church and to expand the gospel. In the nation of China, 1949, it was estimated that there were approximately 100,000 believers. And that was the result of 100 years of missionary uh, work in the country. 1949, the communists take over. All foreign missionaries were expelled from the country. Most of the national leadership were either killed or put into prison, and the church went underground. And the bamboo curtain came, and as far as China was concerned, those of us in the West had no idea what was going on there for 25 years. That bamboo curtain parts, and one of the things that was discovered is that the church grew during that time of persecution And it was estimated that there were 10 million believers in China. No missionaries. No freedom of worship. Intense persecution. 100,000 to 10 million. Because of the faithfulness of those Chinese believers. You know, throughout the history of the United States... There's no doubt that Christianity has played a key part in our country. In fact, Christianity has also enjoyed a kind of favored status in our culture because of that. Because our culture had adopted Judeo-Christian values and morality, the culture around us were very accepting and even affirmed our Christian values because they shared them. Now, for the majority of those folks, it was more religion than faith in Jesus. But still, we shared that common Judeo-Christian moral fiber or background or process by which we said what was right and what was wrong. And that made being an evangelical Christian pretty easy and pretty comfortable. Something that most Christians in the world had no idea what that looked like. But now, as we've already said, in the 21st century, this has changed and we are in this post Christian culture that's pluralistic, that is all truth is relative, and there is a pressure that's been on us now for a few decades that we need to compromise, and if we won't compromise, we will be marginalized, they think. Now, in response to this, I have observed that there seems to be two opposite, what looks like opposite reactions by some in the church. The first is anger in the sense that we will push back. The other is accommodation and a willingness to compromise the Christian message. And on both of those, you're making the same mistake because both of those begin with a focus on the culture that leads to a reaction. Opposite reactions both based, though, on the culture. Paul is telling us there is a, another biblical response. 
And that is, put your confidence in God. Remain focused on Jesus Christ. And then you will have a settled joy in the Lord as you rejoice in the fact that God uses us as his church to expand the gospel, to share the gospel, and we watch and see people getting saved, and that will be our joy. And I would encourage us, myself included, to allow the Apostle Paul under house arrest and these Chinese believers of the last century to stand as our encouragement and as our example as we move forward in whatever lies ahead in the decades that we're going to be living through as well. May we live lives that are worthy of the gospel and may we do it together. And may we do it in this time, in this place God has us. May we stand firm in the gospel and may we stand together in unity and may we be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ if that becomes necessary. And Paul will be providing more details about this life in the weeks ahead. But may we be encouraged. We know the final chapter, don't we? And the day will come in which Christ indeed will come back. He will establish his kingdom. And we will watch every single knee that's ever existed on this planet bow and declare him Christ and Lord. For those who've put faith in him, they will be ushered into his kingdom. For those who have refused, they will be ushered into judgment. But both will declare who Jesus is. Our place is to make sure that the, we put ourselves in a position where God can use us to bring as many people into his kingdom as we can see as we live lives that are worthy of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus. And God, that's really enough to pray. We thank you for the cross and forgiveness we thank you for his resurrection and eternal life. And we praise you and thank you for the hope of his return. May we live now lives that are worthy of him. And it's in his name that we pray. And together, the people of God say, amen.